You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. What does it take to be an entrepreneur and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the Future of Entrepreneurship, a Prop G Pod special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. How did you meet Prince? I actually met him face to face in his house for the first time after I'd been downstairs in his bedroom studio across the hall from his master bedroom. I was in there for a week replacing a console, taking out an old one, putting a new one in, doing all the wiring, making some repairs to his tape machine and just a few odds and ends, pieces of equipment that were down and needed to be repaired. He was upstairs above me in um, just where the kitchen meets the living room is where his his small baby grand um, piano was. And um, you hear him playing piano right right above me. He'd be on the piano and he'd be working out parts for Computer Blue and Purple Rain. And I finally finished up and I didn't have anything left to do. So I called the woman who managed his household affairs, Sandy Scipioni. Uh, and I said, Sandy, I'm done. I, I don't know what to tell him. Uh, she says, oh, let me call him. And and I guess she told him, you know, Susan's ready. So uh, he came down the stairs and he stopped about three stairs from the bottom and she asked me questions. I still remember his hand was, one hand was on the rail. He didn't even say hello, how are you or whatever. He just, he just came right down and got right to the point and started asking, is this done? Is that done? What about this? Tell me about that. And I answered the questions and he said, okay, you can come back tomorrow. And he turned around to go and a little voice inside me said, to myself, do not let this start like this. Don't let this get off on this foot because that would be wrong. I had just moved 2,300 miles away from home and left everyone I'd known, my whole family, friends, everyone I'd ever known to be here for this guy. So I couldn't let this start like this. And he turns to walk away and I said, excuse me, Prince. He turned back around. He said, yeah. And I stuck up my right hand and I said, I'm Susan Rogers. And then he, he got that look on his face like he's about to laugh, but he was really solemn. And he said, he stuck out his hand and he shook my hand. And he said, I'm Prince. And we kind of did that. We do the shaking hands and you do the little head bow. And it's like, okay, now we can begin. <laughs> In 1983, Susan Rogers answered an ad for a sound technician job and found herself working with her favorite artist in the world in his house every day. Prince was 25, right on the brink of becoming a huge star. Susan was 27. It was hard at first. He was unlike any human I'd ever known, and I needed to learn how to behave. I needed to learn what he wanted. Um, I knew what he saw when he saw me initially, and I wanted to change that. Like he, He saw someone who was capable at routing the signal. 
And okay, fine, that that's fair enough. But I suppose I'm I'm, tr- I'm I'm recalling the feeling right now, which is why I'm stammering. Um, I wanted to let him know, if you try me, you'll find I have more to offer. I've got a full can of whoop ass, and you're not tapping it. Like th- there's way more that I could give, but I have no idea how to show you what that might be. So I joined him in August, and I think it was November when we were already filming scenes for the Purple Rain movie. And there was a night shoot in Minneapolis. So Prince had to be on the movie set all night. And I'm at home because there was nothing for me to do. And I felt helpless, and I wanted to help. So I thought to myself, I know what I'll do. I'll make him a pie. I went to the store, I got the ingredients, and I like to bake, so I brought everything home. And I still remember the kitchen counter and the apples and just getting everything together. I made him an apple pie, baked the pie, get in the car, drive to the movie set, and just as I'm walking up to the trailer, I'm thinking, huh, I wonder why I'm bringing him a pie. And then I realized, no, just go with it, go with it, go with it, because you can't back down now. So I, I walked to his door, and I knocked on the door, and he opened the door, and, and I said, Prince... I brought you a pie. And he said, a pie? And I said, yes, a pie. <laughs> so we exchanged goods. I gave him the pie. He gave me some Tic Tacs. And he, he, I found out later that he actually had a sweet tooth, and he really liked that. And thinking about that gesture later and realizing that everything changed after that, I was showing him, I'm here. I want to help. And I'm trying to feel what you must be feeling. And I'm trying to give you what I think might be good for you right now. Maybe that was kind of the exchange. I don't know. But he gave me more to do and more responsibilities after that. And it got better. We got closer. I mean, you were all in. You, you, were, you were not going to just let this be some nine-to-five job where you punched buttons. Oh, no. This was the opportunity of a lifetime. I'm working with my dream artist, and we're young people, and we're making things. We're making a movie. We're going on tour. We're making records, and we think it's great. We don't know if it's going to be successful or not. And he built his team from people who were a lot like him, people who were on the fringes, the margins of what you might consider a great exemplar to be. I was no engineer. I joined him as a technician. Furthermore, I was a woman. So (laughs) I was really low on the hierarchy of who you might choose to be your engineer. Susan did become Prince's audio engineer. He promoted her from technician. It's easy to think about an artist or any public figure working alone, being a genius by themselves. But most times... Making remarkable things is hard work, and it's hard work we do with other people. Prince was brilliant at fostering a feeling of, this is an us. We are an us. He used the plural all the time. We, us. We miss him so much. He had his fault. I'm not going to make it... I'm not going to make it appear as though he was a saint. He could boy, he could peel paint when he was in a bad mood. But he was also easy to love, and we loved him deeply. I'm Phoebe Judge, and this is Love. Susan Rogers remembers spending her days in Prince's house, often with Sandy Scipione, who ran everything. Susan says some people would have called Sandy his personal assistant, 
but she was so much more. Sandy started working for Prince right out of high school. A pretty classic Minnesota girl, born and raised in Minnesota, and uh, was there to help, was there to, to, to serve a role. Sandy did not get into this for the glamour, although it was the business is glamorous. She didn't get into it for the excitement. She was kind of like me in the sense that, hey, there's work to be done, and this work is, is pretty great. Let's get it done. She um, was nurturing and caring toward Prince. She cared deeply about his well-being. Her job was to make sure that his home life was stable. And every artist needs someone in their, in their lives to keep the world out of their way. He always, uh, this is before Paisley Park was built, he always had a warehouse, a commercial warehouse, that he would lease to be the offices and to be where the band rehearsed. We were uh, working every day. We'd often rehearse, the band would rehearse during the day, and then at night, Prince and I would stay up all night in that space, and we would continue working all night, uh, Take a get a few hours of sleep when the sun came up, and then start rehearsal all over again. So Prince was writing so much and so often and writing some really great stuff. Now, right around this time, the aforementioned Sandy Scipioni's father had an unexpected heart attack and passed away. And Sandy had to go up to northern Minnesota, where she was from, and attend to family business. So Sandy took care of so much for Prince. She was the person who made sure the carpets were vacuumed and there was orange juice in the fridge. And she was gone. She wasn't there. And there's nothing Prince can do about it. He understands why she's gone. But each day he was getting more and more short-tempered. And we're watching that temper get a little bit shorter and shorter each day. And he would, he'd out of the corner of his eye, he'd look at me and say, when's Sandy coming back? I don't know, boss. I don't know when she's coming back. This, this isn't, this isn't, I don't know. It's not my responsibility, but I don't know. So, uh, it was one of those days after maybe it might have been seven hours and 13 days. It might have been a week. But after about that amount of time, um, one one morning at the warehouse, he grabbed his notepad, went and wrote these lyrics, came back with the lyrics, and he would set his notepad on the console, the, just like a spiral college notebook. The lyrics were there. We'd pull around the drum machine, set all his instruments up around him, all the keyboards and bass and everything. And one by one, he would lay down these tracks while looking at the lyrics on the page. He does the vocal all by himself. He doesn't want anyone around while he's singing. He does the backing vocals. You come back in, you add the remainder of the tracks, do the ornamentation. Now we can push the faders up and we can start getting a, getting a mix going. We print the mix and it's just a Wednesday. It's been seven hours and thirteen days Since you took your love away He took the emotions of frustration, missing someone, the acknowledgement that he needed someone in his life. He didn't want to need anybody. He was famous for that. But he did need people, and uh, he really needed Sandy. When he 
when he sings, all the flowers that you planted in the backyard all died when you went away. Well, that would have been Sandy. It would have been Sandy who planted flowers around his house and Sandy who told the groundskeepers, uh, don't mow today, he's he's taking a nap. Or you know, you know what I'm saying? It's the keeping his domestic life on track that inspired it. And of course, he made it a love song because he needed to. The recording of Nothing Compares to You that we just heard is the actual recording Susan and Prince made together on that day in 1984. They never shared it with anyone. It went right into storage. He recorded a different version of it for his funk band, The Family, but the song didn't attract much attention until 1990, when Sinead O'Connor made it into a gigantic international hit. The video was memorable. Sinead O'Connor had her hair cut very, very short. Some said she'd cut off her hair to protest her record label's request that she try to look prettier. Her version held the number one spot on the Billboard charts for weeks. Rolling Stone has it on their list of the 500 greatest songs of all time, right next to Bohemian Rhapsody. And all this time, Prince's recording was locked away. No one could listen to it at all until this past April, when his estate released it two years after his death. It's, inter- it's interesting, the, the secret behind such a massive hit is, you know, that it's a song of absence, but not of a, of a lover, but of a presence, an absence of someone's consideration for you. It truly is. That's what that's about. Nothing compares to you. You serve a unique function in my life. Um, it's, that's kind of a vulnerable thing to say to somebody. Nothing compares to you. The, the me that I am, the, the, the function that I have in this life includes you. It includes you. That's pretty generous. It's pretty vulnerable, but it's pretty generous. Sandy Scipioni worked for Prince for five years. When she left, he paid her college tuition, and she went on to work for IBM and Dell. She passed away in 2015 in Round Rock, Texas. Her obituary says, Sandy's world revolved around her family and her friends, and she was deeply moved by all of them. Support for This Is Love comes from Indeed. Sometimes a new person joining your team at work can make a good team into a great one. But finding the right person can be a challenge. Indeed helps you find that perfect match when you're looking to hire. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences for job candidates and becomes more accurate over time. So the more you use it, the better it gets. Indeed will also help you with some of the busy work of hiring too, like scheduling, screening, and messaging candidates. According to a survey by Indeed, 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. Listeners of This Is Love will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash This Is Love. Just go to Indeed.com slash This Is Love right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. 
Indeed.com slash this is love. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What does it take to be an entrepreneur and how is it changing in our ever evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G podcast and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the Future of Entrepreneurship, a Prop G pod special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. Nothing Compares to You is not the only song Prince wrote and someone else made famous. He gave away some of his best material. He gave away Manic Monday to the Bangles. <laughs> he uh, nearly gave away Kiss, and Kiss was one of his biggest singles. It, originally, he just wrote it. It was just a, kind of a one-off. He just knocked it off to give it to a band called Maserati. Um, his bass player, Mark Brown, had a pet project and got this band signed to Prince's own Paisley Park Records label, and Prince gave that song away, and it was so good that he ended up taking it back. After Prince died... Stories began to circulate that he'd kept thousands and thousands of unreleased songs in an actual bank vault in his home, going back decades. He didn't leave a will, and it's not clear if or how he wanted them released. The recording he and Susan made of Nothing Compares to You was the first thing to come out from the vault. She says, the vault's full of great pieces. Songs Prince set aside not because they weren't good, but because he was so selective. Prince chose the pieces that he wanted to release based on their lyrical content. I, uh, because melodies and rhythms and virtuoso performances were so easy for him to turn out, he, I mean, he could just crank those out on a daily basis. Pound for pound, the guy wrote more great melodic hooks than I think just about any other writer except for perhaps Paul McCartney. Anyway, because Prince did that kind of writing so easily and well, I think what separated his his works in his mind were the lyrics, the message that he wanted to convey to listeners. He didn't want to reveal nothing compares to you to others. I don't think he wanted people to know that he simply missed someone. He was so capable. He was so competent. He had so many skills at such a high level, but he needed all of us at that time to be to be parts of the machine. He was certainly the engine and the fuel, but he needed all the other parts. I mean, you know, that seems like the we can try to get away not needing anyone, but it usually doesn't work. No, it's it's he he was a lonely young man. He he left home when he was a teenager. He didn't get the nurturing and care that he needed as a child. So like any child in that situation, he learns to be very reliant to take care of himself. That's what you have to do if you're going to survive. You have to learn how to answer your own needs. He would stay up all night. Andre Simone tells this story as he lived at Andre Simone's house. He would stay up all night in the basement and he would work on songs. And when he was 17 years old, he talked his way into Owen Husney's recording studio and he would clean the studio in exchange for just the opportunity to be there and to make his music. He was creating a world for himself that would allow him 
to live and function and make money and get his voice out there. But as any rock star will tell you, that's incredibly socially isolating. When all the people around you, all the people around you, your closest friends, are people who get a paycheck from you. So you have to be responsible. You have to be their boss. You have to be able to fire them. Necessary. These are your friends. So what do you do? You you say, well, I need these employees more than I need friends. And 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 that's what you do. You have employees, you don't have friends. When you reflect back on your time together, what do you feel the most? It's quite a lot, but what I feel the most, I suppose, is gratitude. I feel so deeply, deeply grateful that he chose me to be there with him and that he kept me there for that many years, allowing me to work alongside him. Um, I feel a great deal of, of affection and, and warmth for him. Um I feel compelled to make sure that the things that he wanted and that mattered to him are still being discussed today. I think what Prince wanted more than anything was for his music to be heard. I'm certain that he didn't get into this for the fame, and I'm certain he didn't get into it for the money. He just wasn't that kind of thinker. He wasn't that kind of artist. He got in it because, like a lot of great artists, he just wanted to make stuff, and he wanted his music to be heard, and music was his way of being in the world. He made a lot of great music, so that's why I talk about him now, and um, I, I, I think it's what he deserves. Is it strange for you to have a emotional and a personal relationship to his music and to, you know, Prince as a person. My Prince is someone else's seal, which is someone else's Mick Jagger and someone else's Paul McCartney. There are these people that we work with that we know really, really well, and we'll never be able to see them the way others see them. We'll always have, we'll always have this connection between us. But at the same time, um, we are we we're still capable of being music fans and fans of their music as well his music still moves me some pieces more than others some periods in his repertoire more than others uh, one of my favorite prince albums is dirty mind i didn't record that one but man <laughs> boy do i wish i had it's one of my favorite records not many people love their work the way it seems you do that's just sad one of our best attributes that we have as children and risk losing as we get older, but we have the attribute of being able to daydream. We fantasize. And uh, in fantasy, we get to take our brain out and let it play. Don't give it any problems to solve. And in doing that, it reveals what our brain wants. And if you should be so lucky as to have daydreams that are somewhat linked to the reality of your abilities. Um, we, we are so judgmental sometimes. We're always judging each other, I suppose, as a way of maybe judging ourselves and saying, you know, your way is the wrong way. And I'm, I'm done, I've done it right. <laughs> How do you know their way is the wrong way? Maybe it's the right way for them. You know, maybe she meant to do that. Leave her alone. In 1998, Susan Rogers produced the multi-platinum Bare Naked Ladies album, Stunt the one with the hit song, One Week. She used her royalty money to quit the music business. She put herself through college, then graduate school. She got her Ph.D. in psychology, 
and she's now the director of the Music Perception and Cognition Laboratory at Berklee College of Music in Boston. Among other things, she studies the relationship between music and cognition, and how music can be the language of emotion. So humans are very good at encoding sounds, but the sounds that they are especially good at encoding happen to be those sounds that are of an emotional nature rather than an informative nature. As any teacher or parent can tell you, (laughs) students and kids don't always pay attention when you talk to them, so sometimes the information goes in one ear and out the other. But when it comes to music, when you take words or when you just take pitches or rhythm, right, and you encode it into a melody or harmony, that is very effective at eliciting feelings, emotions, all kinds of emotions. When you've got emotions flowing through your nervous system and that music is playing through your auditory path, those two things become linked really easily because they share a lot of the same circuits in the brainstem and in the thalamus and the limbic system. That's pretty great. So that means that music is very easily encoded as a memory, and that's why music is particularly robust against the sorts of damages that dementia can cause or even that brain damage can cause. So a person might be really deeply in the throes of dementia and not be able to remember her own her children's names, but she can remember certain songs from her childhood because they were so deeply encoded. We need to know much more about that, of course, but that's uh, basically why that works so well. Do you have favorite memories connected to pieces of music? So deeply and so many. And I must admit that the memories are more of feelings than they are of particular pieces of music. I think most of us are this way. Like you can remember from your childhood uh, feeling deep joy at listening to a a piece of music, early, for me, early Beatles music, and I was a kid in the 60s, and then I remember hearing uh, Stephen Stills singing the long version of Bluebird. It was in the back of the family station wagon, we're going on a vacation, and I remember thinking, whatever this is, it is more true and right and honest and better than anything else. I remember uh, very clearly driving with my mother down the Kennedy Expressway in Chicago. And this is when I was very young. But she was listening to the talking head song, Psycho Killer. And she was so happy. And I remember just listening next to her and being very young, but seeing how happy this song was making her. And I don't know where we were going, and I don't... I don't, But I just remember that memory so clearly. And it wasn't something that I was necessarily into, but she she loved it so much. And think about what that would do for a child, because a child needs, on a deep biological level, you need mom and dad to be happy, because your safety depends on it. So there you are, and you're in the car, and mom is happy. What a good feeling for a child. And wouldn't any child love the thing that makes mom so happy? And it's and it's psycho killer. That was okay. 
is created by Lauren Spohr and me. Nadia Wilson is our senior producer. Audio mixed by Michael Raphael and Rob Byers. Special thanks to Mike Arnold and to the Kitchen Sisters, Nikki Silva and Davia Nelson. Julian Alexander creates original illustrations for each episode of This Is Love, and she's also created a special This Is Love sticker featuring a woman swimming alongside a baby whale. You might remember that story from last season. It's called Something Large and Wild. You can see the illustrations and find a link to our shop at thisislovepodcast.com. We'll also put a link in the show notes. If you like what we're doing here with these love stories, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. This is Love is recorded in the studios of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC. We're a proud member of Radiotopia from PRX, a collection of the best podcasts around. We'll be back next week. I'm Phoebe Judge, and this is Love. What does it take to be an entrepreneur, and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast, and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the future of entrepreneurship of Prop G Pod, special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.